Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Infertility is a difficult situation and often we're not getting real answers from conventional medical practitioners. We're given a diagnosis of unexplained infertility or we're told that IVF is our only option. Fortunately, there's a lot we can do from an integrative and functional perspective, from a deeper dive into lab testing to nutrition and lifestyle changes. I wanted to bring on one of my favorite fertility practitioners to help sort through the things that really matter when it comes to fertility. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Hormonally Yours, with the hormone dietitian. Dr. Kalia Waddles is a naturopathic doctor, certified functional medicine practitioner, speaker, and educator. Dr. Waddles combines her naturopathic and functional medicine training to treat patients with a functional fertility perspective using a root cause, science-based body systems approach to cultivating a fertile body. She is dedicated to using this patient-centered method to support patients any on their fertility journey, whether they are thinking about getting pregnant for the first time or exploring advanced fertility treatments. Let's dive in. Welcome, Dr. Waddles. I am so glad you're here to talk with me today. Tell the audience a little about who you are and what you do. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's always such an honor to be invited to share a little bit about who I am and what I do. So I'm Dr. Kalia Waddles. I'm a naturopathic doctor and certified functional medicine practitioner. I specialize in fertility and love to talk all things women's health, fertility, hormones. Awesome. So something super cool about you that I think not everybody knows is that you actually have a whole farm. I do have a whole farm. (laughs) I never thought I would say that about myself, but I am a I guess I'm doctor slash farm mom. So we are up to, we have 16 cows and four pigs, 14 chickens, two dogs, five cats. We are like a little functioning ecosystem around here. That's amazing. Was your new calf born yet? I've been kind of waiting for the new. We're on calf watch. Calf watch 2022. This mama is ready to go at any moment. So I am constantly looking out the window and checking on her and 
like giving her words of encouragement. You got this mama. Oh, that's so amazing. And the last one was so cute and curly. They're so beautiful. It's so funny. I never thought I would be like a cow person, but here I am. (laughs) Yeah. So I actually, um, when I was going back to school, because dietitian is a second career for me. So I had applied to a bunch of grad schools and I had actually gotten into Bastyr and was considering um, going there and, you know, just sort of by fate ended up up here in New Hampshire instead. Um, But I'm always so jealous. I have a lot of functional dietitian friends who went there or work there. And I'm always so jealous about that gardening class. And I know you've shared some of the the herbal things that you learned there. It's so cool. Yes, I definitely loved it. I did my undergraduate degree in nutrition at Bastyr and then went through my doctoral program there. So overall, I was there for seven years. So I am a bit biased, but it is very magical. And the campus is in this beautiful state park. And it's really, I don't know, has this fairy tale quality to it. That's so cool. You know, I think, you know, we bought a big old house as well this year. And last year was my first year gardening, but I just kind of let it do what it was going to do last year. And this year I'm trying to be a little bit more intentional about it and, and hoping to get some medicinal herbs in the garden going this year. Well, we share that goal for the year. I'm trying to do the same with my garden. So we'll have to keep checking in and like, how's your garden going? And we'll be those people that share gardening tips. Yes. I actually hired someone. I was so psyched to find this person, but she specializes in regenerative landscaping. Um, So she came over to kind of walk the property and tell me, you know, what we have, what's working, what's not. And then um, she is still writing up a report for me about, you know, what I can put where um, and where I can get that from. (laughs) I need that person. We all need that person. Yeah, it was super cool. I mean, down to like, she told me the best place to put my composter. Um, So I'm super excited to get started. It's so funny to, you know, I think it's such a a nice change. Um, You know, when you do the kind of work that we do and we're sitting all day and we're working with clients and we're using our brain all day long. Um, So it really is just, you know, refreshing and restorative to get outside and get our hands in the dirt and all of that. So I love that we share that in common now and it's, it's newish for both of us. (laughs) Yes. And I, now I have to tell you that I've been wearing an aura ring for the last month or so, Mm -hmm. and it, you know, tracks your heart rate and your heart rate variability and your body temp. And it tells you when your biometrics enter this space that's considered restorative. And, you know, I intellectually understand going outside and getting fresh air and going on a walk is a restorative. Like I've probably said that before, but now actually going out and watching my biometrics improve when I'm just outside walking around, it's like, wow, that's real. I know. I love when, when actual data we have backs up the things that we've been saying for years and years and years. Very reassuring. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a similar experience for me when I got to wear a CGM. Yes. Um, You know, especially I, I tell people to have their dessert if they're going to have a dessert to have it close to their balanced meal, not a couple hours later. And like, Mm -hmm. I totally saw that backed up in the data. It was like, 
almost not even a blip if I would have chocolate after my lunch, but if I would eat it by itself, I would have a huge spike. How cool. See, we're not making this stuff up. I know it's it's very validating <laughs> to be able to see that sometimes and be like, I know I didn't pull that out of my butt. Like there's exactly legit research behind that. <laughs> so for those who don't know, can you explain a little bit about what a naturopathic doctor is and what they do? I would love to. This is a great question because Maybe this is just my perception, but I perceive naturopathic doctors to at times be some somewhat of the underdog. So I love to really talk about what it is that we do. And licensed naturopathic doctors attend four-year accredited medical schools and we're trained as primary care providers. And I think that's something that most people aren't really aware of that, you know, here in Washington state, I'm licensed as a primary care doc. So I can order labs and order imaging and write prescriptions and make referrals and do all the things that you would expect in a primary care setting. Uh, Naturopathic doctors are trained in the basic sciences and pharmacology, minor office procedures, but we also have this training in physical medicine and botanical medicine, therapeutic nutrition, mind-body medicine. So really we have a ton of tools that we can choose from when we're approaching patients. And I always say it's really... um, and also, and rather than an either or Mm -hmm. situation, like I'm going to do the standard of care, but then look at all of these other things that we can utilize to take care of you. So it's really a well-rounded approach to patient care. Yeah. I love that, you know, unlike conventional medicine doctors, naturopathic doctors are trained in nutrition. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you do understand the biochemistry of food and digestion and absorption and, It's just a a whole different situation. I'm very lucky that um, in my state, New Hampshire, naturopathic doctors can be primary care doctors Mm -hmm. as well. And so, you know, I have my insurance PCP that I see my, you know, what do they call it? My primary, you know, referral, uh, if I need a referral for anything. Um, So I see her, you know, once a year for, for our usual thing, but I go to my naturopath for anything that that I need help with. Yeah. And I think I'm really lucky here in Washington state that I can actually be that. So I bill insurance just as a regular old primary care doctor and state to state licensure is different. And I feel really fortunate here in Washington that I can be that central hub. I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, people are really relieved to be able to find someone that will listen and look at them as a whole person. So we're, we're pretty fortunate. Yeah, I always feel, you know, because obviously I I kind of know a lot about health and hormones and nutrition, but sometimes you need that outside eye to help you kind of sort through what's going on or come up with something that maybe you hadn't considered. Oh yeah, I'm my own worst patient. I'll just put that out there that I always need a second eye on it. It's hard to treat yourself. Yeah, no, no. We, I think that's very common for healthcare practitioners as, you know, especially ones who are running very successful businesses is, you know, we may not always be doing the things that we're talking about 10 times a day with our clients. (laughs) It's almost like you've had this conversation before with others. Yeah, you know, it it happens. I mean, I know, um, for example, when I run group programs, you know, typically those are at night because that's the time that works best for other people's schedules. But 
for me to run a seven o'clock group coaching call, that means I'm having a coffee at like four or five o'clock, which, you know, not ideal. Um, but it's, it's what you got to do sometimes. And that, you know, that's really where that work-life balance comes in and just realizing that I can't run group programs week after week or more than one night a week. Cause it just affects my own health too much. Yeah. Well, what a testament to the fact that we have to have those the balanced life to have balance everywhere else. So we're learning that firsthand all the time, myself included. Oh yeah. I think, I think for sure, you know, I talk all the time about how taking time for exercise or movement actually makes more time for work because your energy is better and your productivity is better. And, you know, it, it may seem like you don't have a half hour to dedicate to it, but you know, really you can't afford not to sometimes. Yeah. This is a conversation I have with patients about sleep all the time, right? Because we get those high performing, what we might call type A personalities, successful business owners. And it's this mentality of like, I'll sleep when I'm dead thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we always try to reframe like sleep is actually a really productive thing to do. It's very restorative. There's all these processes going on. in the brain and the nervous system. And it's actually really productive. So we have to prioritize that time. And sometimes I think that reframe is like, oh, I am, I'm still accomplishing things while I'm there in bed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing things in bed. (laughs) I love it. So how did you first become interested in hormones and fertility? This is a long story, but I'll give you the genesis of it was I was in naturopathic medical school. I was in my second year and I got pregnant and I wanted to be a mom so bad. And I had my baby girl and I realized, wow, that was such a transformational experience that for anyone else who wants that, I want that for them. And so that led me to kind of I I almost cold called the local fertility clinics in my area and said, listen, I know I'm not a traditional OB student, but please, will you let me come precept in the clinic? And fortunately, three different clinics offered me a space. And so I was able to rotate through my local fertility clinics. And I, you know, sat in on intakes and sat in on procedures and really was integrated into their patient care system. And what I realized was there was this, this gap between the type of medicine that I do, which is really deeply rooted in lifestyle medicine. And when someone gets to the point where they're doing, you know, IVF or even IUI and not to say that patients won't ultimately need advanced reproduction technology, but I saw, you know, all of these patients with really severe insulin resistance or nutritional insufficiencies, lots of just issues with their modifiable lifestyle factors. And I thought, even if these patients still, you know, needed help with going through IVF, I I know that we could improve outcomes here. Um, And so I, I identified this place where there was opportunity to form a bridge and I really wanted to be that person. And so by engaging in my, you know, local fertility world, I was able to build some relationships that allowed us to build somewhat of a collaborative care team. And I think that that's the beauty of naturopathic medicine, functional medicine, is that we have the power to communicate with other types of practitioners and everyone benefits when we can work together to support a patient utilizing all of our strengths. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
you know, it's, it's interesting to realize that most fertility clinics don't have a dietitian on their staff. They don't have integrative care. They don't have an in-house acupuncturist. And so Mm -hmm. I, I find that a lot of patients who find themselves there are having to put together their dream team on their own. You know, they're having to connect yeah. all the pieces and run from one place to another. But I mean, it would make so much more sense if it were all under one umbrella. Absolutely. And I think maybe it's kind of the medical ecosystem that's here in Seattle. And that was possibly what opened the door is that in our largest IVF clinic, we do have nutrition professionals and acupuncturists and two of the reproductive endocrinologists are certified by the American Board of Lifestyle Medicine. So there definitely is an, I think, an ecosystem that allows for us to all collaborate successfully. Yes. I mean, Seattle is kind of a a wonderland and I actually do do know a dietitian there who works for a fertility clinic and has Mm -hmm. food as medicine sort of, um, you know, teaching, teaching people how to cook and they exercise as part of the program. It's all, you know, a really great program. Um, but I, I do think, and I talk about this with my colleagues who are, are from that area, that it is kind of a little like integrative functional medicine bubble compared with a lot of other places in the country. Yeah. I definitely take that for granted. But I, I do think that it is, you know, a pretty clear demonstration that when it's done right, it works. And patients feel that. And I, how empowering that we're able to give patients the information they need to kind of take charge of their fertility journey and improve their outcomes. And everybody's respectful of everyone's strengths. And yeah, it's a, it's a nice system. Yeah. Here, you know, when I did have an office, I used to have an office in downtown Portsmouth. Um, and I would, I would have patients who were going to the local fertility clinic and really they were, they were telling them that nutrition makes no difference for PCOS. Nutrition makes no difference for fertility. You can't impact egg quality with nutrition. And it just felt like, like not only did they not want to collaborate with me, but they were telling my patients that what they were doing was useless or, you know, not helping. And they were just, you know, focusing on the wrong things. I think this is one of the biggest challenges and it's something that people reach out to me about all the time is, you know, I talk often about preconception labs and doing all of this preconception planning and people send me messages like, well, I brought this up to my doc and they weren't interested or they weren't willing to do this. And what do I do now? And it's really tough because I know that not everyone has access to the type of provider who's willing to stay curious and willing to do these things. But I always tell people, you're not married to your doctor, you absolutely have the right to shop around and find someone with an approach that resonates with you. So all of that to say, I think that that's one reason I really value social media is because we're able, you know, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so when we're able to raise these topics and then people even know to ask the question to their doctor, I think that's so valuable. Yeah. I I hate to say it, but I'm actually pretty surprised when one of my clients goes into her primary doctor and says, Hey, I heard about inositol. I have all these studies. 
what do you think about this for PCOS? And the doctor is like, you know, I've never heard of it before, but let me read the papers. And, and I, you know, I think it's worth a shot. Um, mm-hmm. And when, when they have that sort of open mind and, you know, maybe it's research that they haven't come across or it's a small community where they don't see a lot of PCOS, you know, it's important. And I think those kind of doctors, it's like, you need to hold on to those doctors who are are open-minded and willing to listen to you and willing to um, allow you to work on the things that you want to work on. Exactly. And that's been an evolution of my practice too, if I'm being fully transparent, is I have had to find peace and and comfort and confidence in the fact that sometimes I patients will bring things to me and I'll say, "Wow, this is new to me. I'm going to I'm going to need to do some research." But I have found that patients actually really appreciate when you are honest and say, "I want to learn more about this. I'm actually not sure." They'd rather you do that than make up an answer or shut it down. So that's where I'm at of like I'm open-minded. I'm curious. I'm willing to explore. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, uh, expecting a practitioner of any kind to know everything about every condition known to man is, is just, you know, not, not really possible. Um, so having that type of practitioner who can say, you know, I don't really know, let me do some research and get back to you. I think it helps them feel more heard and like you're willing to go above and beyond to, to figure out what's going on for them. Yeah. And good for me too, because there's no way I can stay up to date on every emerging topic that's ever existed. So when patients bring me things and then I get to learn about that, like, wow, that's just good for me too. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love learning new things. And I mean, the science is constantly evolving and you know, I try to do sort of monthly literature reviews just to see what's new, um, in, Mm -hmm. in my, my areas of specialty, but, you know, some slip through the cracks sometimes. And sometimes people will send me things and ask me what I think about them. And it's like, Oh, I hadn't seen that. Let me go see if I can track down the full study, you know? Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So in your practice, you talk a lot about um, fertility foundations. What do you mean mm-hmm. by that? Well, I think we could go a couple different directions with this. So first of all, with fertility foundations, I mean some foundational personal lifestyle factors that really apply to everyone across the board, whether it's related to fertility or your cardiovascular health or really anybody. And that's sleep and relaxation. So we have to have some restorative practices, exercise and movement. And I do not necessarily mean, you know, high intensity interval training. I mean, intentional movement of the body, whatever is available to you. Nutrition, which is obviously, as you know, highly customizable stress management techniques, and then our relationships. We know that behavior change happens in communities. So that really strong social network from my perspective is part of our foundational health system. So those are our personal lifestyle factors that I think I really want to address with every single patient, no matter what. And then we have our fertility specific foundations. And this is, you know, what's your menstrual cycle length? What's your experience before and during your period? Do you get fertile quality cervical fluid each month? There's those questions that help me identify if someone's having, you know, some kind of hormonal issue, if there's something I need to address right away with labs. 
So it's a combination. Your fertility foundations are a combination of these really approachable lifestyle factors and then what's going on with your specific fertility picture. Yeah, I think it's great that you mentioned um, the whole idea of connection and relationships. I think it's it's far too common for uh, the person trying to get pregnant to take on all of the responsibility of doing all of the right things uh, to support that pregnancy. But more and more, we're starting to see research that, you know, at least from the, the male partner's sperm health, how much diet and lifestyle, um, and all of those things you talked about, um, Mm -hmm. have an effect on sperm quality and that's half the equation. That's exactly right. And I think that it's these lifestyle factors because they seem so simple that we take them for granted. I, I see that all the time and we'll have, you know, patients that are pretty far into their fertility treatment and not to say that their treatment isn't needed, but it is certainly expensive on a number of levels, you know, financially, emotionally, on your relationship. And the lifestyle factors haven't been addressed yet. And that's why I always call them the foundational piece, because I really think we have to kind of turn those stones over before we move on. At least that's my therapeutic approach. Yeah. You know, that added stress, I mean, obviously the financial stress of undergoing fertility treatments, but the added stress of the time, mm-hmm. you know, just a monitored cycle alone, how many times you have to go to the clinic to be measured. Yeah. And, you know, there's stress of, is it going to work? Is it not going to work? There's more stress when it's like, okay, we only have this one shot. Um, you know, this is all we can afford. So we're only going to do this once and it better work. So you really need to have that. I, I always ask my fertility clients, if they have someone who understands what they're going through, you know, do they have a friend they can talk to who's kind of been down this road? Um, Are they in a support group? Do they have a therapist? Um, All of these things are so important to support well-being and fertility. Absolutely. I think that's so important. And we're lucky here that we have some licensed mental health care providers who specialize in perinatal care, prenatal care. And I think that's really important. And this is also where I think the beauty of, you know, uh, group classes or shared medical visits is really helpful because it's this built-in community of, wow, I'm not alone. And there's other people who are going through this same steps as I am. And we can really relate on that experience because it's hard and it's draining and it can be isolating. Yeah, I have to say that's been the the nicest surprise um, when I created my PCOS course two years ago was, you know, I knew the education part was valuable and that they would get results from it. But what I didn't expect was the community that has grown from all of the students who've gone through the course and they, you know, maybe never met someone with PCOS before they joined the course. And you know, now it's like they've got this whole group of people they can just ask a question of and somebody's gone through it in the group, I guarantee, which is, it's so nice to have them sort of supporting each other in there. I think there's so much value in in comfort in just hearing that someone has shared some part of your experience. And it's apparent anytime you go on any fertility forums, like any of the trying Mm -hmm. to conceive message boards, you know, it's like, even just the amount of people that are rooting for you when you say you're about to take a pregnancy test, it's like, what a sense of community and sisterhood and friendship. 
Yeah. Yeah. We could talk forever about how that's been kind of lost (laughs) in modern society and we don't have, you know, the women don't come in to surround you as you give birth and all of that. Yeah. Our circle. It's so true. Yeah. Um, back to the clinical piece of things. <laughs> um, what are some labs that you might run when you've got someone who's dealing with something like unexplained infertility or subfertility of some some sort? Oh, great question. Ooh, unexplained infertility. Is that not the most frustrating diagnosis in the world? It's like, oh, unexplained. And I think that the reason why it's so frustrating, not only because the title is just like, we don't know, but also because that's also, that's often the end of the story. It's like, well, your fertility, we can't figure it out. So we're going to stop looking and you have one choice and, you know, off to IVF you are, and we're not going to look at anything else. And I think that's when patients come to me and they're desperate. They just want Mm -hmm. someone to tell them like, yeah, we have checked everything off the list and we really can't explain it. And I'll just be really transparent. I can't always find an answer, but oftentimes I can. And so I think it's, again, that curiosity and willingness to look. So uh, some of the things that I'm thinking about when a patient comes and they say, I've been diagnosed with unexplained infertility, I always look to the gut. That's our favorite thing in the world in functional Mm -hmm. medicine, right? The gut health is so important. That's how we interface with the world. So I'm always looking at what's going on in the gastrointestinal system. Are there some nutritional insufficiencies or straight up deficiencies? What are the toxic exposures looking like? Is there altered immune activity? One that I know you and I both field a lot of questions about is luteal phase deficiency or low progesterone. Also thyroid issues, super common. Um, Oxidative stressors, inflammation, adrenal dysfunction, really the list goes on and on when we're looking at a body systems approach. So To answer your question, some of the labs that I run are, I love a comprehensive stool analysis. I love to be able to look at a stool sample and see what's going on in terms of digestion, inflammation, what's going on with the gut bacteria. I also do a test called the NutriVal, which looks at a number of micronutrients, uh, markers of oxidative stress, also some environmental toxicants like mercury and cadmium that we know are particularly troublesome for fertility. Um, I'm always doing a luteal phase progesterone in any patient that comes to me with fertility concerns so that we can see if someone's ovulating and then kind of the level of progesterone that they're able to make in their luteal phase. I'm doing a full thyroid workup. So for me, that means a thyroid stimulating hormone or a TSH, free T3, free T4, reverse T3, and thyroid antibodies at minimum. I also love to look at inflammatory status with a marker called high sensitivity C-reactive protein. It's something I'm running a lot in my fertility patients. And then as needed, I love to do some of the advanced testing, like a salivary cortisol test. Um, Sometimes you call that an adrenal stress profile. And then some of the cycle tracking measures like the Dutch test or the Genova Rhythm Plus, I'm utilizing those two. So really it's kind of a choose your own adventure. I let my patient's history, the labs that they've had done already kind of guide me. And then we actually almost always have a handful of investigations to do that haven't been performed already. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that looks pretty much like my fertility workup as well. Although sometimes I will go ahead and do some genetics right off the bat. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, depending on 
what they're presenting with, um, or it might be a follow-up to the, the micronutrient test if I'm, I'm seeing suboptimal levels or if I'm doing a cardiovascular test and I'm seeing high homocysteine, I want to know why. If I'm doing a Dutch and they're not methylating, mm-hmm. I want to know why. So there's, you know, often layers of tests to really get at the why. <laughs> yeah, I I love that. I usually talk about it's kind of a tiered approach. So I, um, for a long time was working in an insurance-based model. And so we would try to do all of the labs that were, you know, pretty standard that would be well covered by insurance and then escalate as needed to some of the cash tests. So there's so much that we can do to figure out what's really driving this process. Yeah, I might actually even do in some of my unexplained infertility folks, you know, where they have inflammation, but there's no obvious source. That's where I might start looking at food sensitivities. Yes. You know, just to see, and I hate the elimination diets that come with those kind of tests, but you know, I just want to make sure that you're not eating something every single day that is contributing to inflammation in your body. You know? Absolutely. People are always like surprised when their inflammatory markers come back and then they want to know what, what is the source of this? And I would say, and I'd love to hear from your perspective too, but probably the most common things that I see are dysbiosis. So like imbalanced gut bacteria, food sensitivities and periodontal disease, which I think maybe goes a little bit under the radar, but I'm always having my fertility patients get into the dentist and do your teeth cleaning and make sure that your gums are healthy uh, because that can be a real source of chronic inflammation. Yeah, I feel, you know, as a dietitian, you know, running tests, I feel like some of them, the ones I feel comfortable running are the ones that I can impact with nutrition or supplements because that's totally in my wheelhouse. For me, I would refer out to a naturopath to do some of those like stealth infection or heavy metal kind of tests, you know, just because I feel like the treatment for that doesn't fall into my scope. You know, that's where I kind of draw the line on what I run and what I do versus, you know, it's the ones that, that I, you know, if they would have to do like a chelation protocol or there's some sort of gum infection, that's obviously nowhere even remotely near my scope, you know? Yeah. Especially in terms of the environmental toxicants, that's even an area where I have a environmental medicine specialist that's near me. And I'll even refer, because like you're saying, some of the IV chelation therapies, it's just a lot. And it also impacts the timeline in which we want to, you know, do our preconception planning, because if we're planning to mobilize all of these toxins, we have to push that, that trying to conceive timeline down the road a little bit. So lots of considerations as we do that testing and uncover what's going on. Yeah, that's a great topic you bring up is timing. You know, I think a lot of times someone ends up working with a integrative functional fertility specialist pretty late in the game, you know, sort of once they've gone through all the testing and maybe gotten slapped with that label of unexplained infertility. Um, you know, they, they may already have gone through a few fertility treatments and failed, and now they're looking to optimize, you know, sort of their last shot at treatment. But in an ideal world, when mm-hmm. would you prefer that folks start coming in and working with you? 
I think the keyword here is ideal, right? Mm -hmm. Because like you said, it's often I've exhausted all of these options and now I'm here and I wanted to get pregnant yesterday. So what are we going to do now? And this is why I'm pretty vocal about the fact that I really think we should plan for pregnancy, plan for preconception care a year before we actually want to start trying to get pregnant. And this is why I kind of plant that seed in my younger patients who come for their, you know, for example, their annual exam. And I'm asking the question, you know, what are your fertility goals? Because then we can really start to have the conversation in a proactive way, which I think is extremely helpful. So just to to give some background on kind of why I frame this conversation in this way is that if we look at the way the, the process of folliculogenesis or how we mature a follicle, which is essentially a little egg sac that contains our egg cell that you know, could potentially become our baby. We see that the pathway from a primordial follicle, which is a very early stage of that egg development, to a follicle that could potentially ovulate, that takes about 10 menstrual cycles, right? That's almost a year. So if I have that entire time frame to make sure that nutrition is adequate and we're in a setting of low toxicity and we can do stress management and make sure that that inflammation is modulated. That's really going to create and cultivate health within those egg cells. I always talk about egg health rather than egg quality. And we can talk about that too, Mm -hmm. but um, I think it's really important that we have that a realistic time frame, And then we'll, you'll see, you know, on the internet and everywhere that our most impactful stage is really in the 120 days before ovulation. And that's really because in that time frame, our egg cells are most vulnerable to things like toxic exposures and methyl donor deficiencies and, you know, other nutritional deficiencies. And so it's really in that 120 days that we can make a huge difference with dietary antioxidants and mitochondrial support and calling upon things like acupuncture. Once that follicle gets really big and it's almost ready to ovulate, our interventions are less helpful. So that 120 days before ovulation is really our our window of opportunity to do all of that good work. Um, So it's a hard conversation sometimes when people are really ready, but I usually tell patients, give me at least four months to make a big impact because that, that egg cell, that's going to become a human. So let's make sure we, we give it the best shot we can. Yeah, I think, you know, a year is a good sort of time frame, but I would say probably most, especially if you already are recognizing that you have some symptoms that mm-hmm. hormones aren't great or you're, you know, ha- you already are, have some diagnoses or some issues. Um, you know, I'm thinking of my PCOS uh, patients, for example, but like, you know, if you're, if you're coming to someone, you know, and you're actively trying to conceive and we're trying to run some of these tests on you, like, let's say, let's say we're doing a comprehensive stool test and it comes mm-hmm. back like a mess, you know, they've got H pylori, they've got, you know, high, lots of bad things, low, lots of good things we're kind of limited in what we can do when you're actively trying to conceive in in terms of the approaches that we're able to take. And hormone testing is the same way. You know, we're we're not going to be able to implement some of the things that we would implement if you weren't actively trying to conceive because Mm -hmm. some of these things are not safe for pregnancy. Yeah. It's always a, we're walking a fine line and having that informed consent and having those conversations about our limitations 
Because when someone's actively trying to conceive from a safety standpoint, in my mind, I kind of only utilize treatments that I would be comfortable doing in someone mm-hmm. who was already pregnant. I'm sure most of Same. us feel like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's a, these crucial conversations, but it's really important to ask the question. And I think patients ultimately appreciate that we have their safety in the front of our mind. Yes, that is a huge, um, you know, we didn't say I was going to talk about this, but that's a huge reason why you want to work with a credentialed practitioner because we're always checking, you know, we're checking the safety of any intervention against the medications that you're already on, the medical conditions that you already have. Um, And that's just not something you're going to get from someone who's a, you know, quote unquote fertility coach. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's something that I see in my practice all the time. There's always questions about, you know, I've been prescribed this medication and it's fine right now because I'm not pregnant yet, but no one has given me any guidance about when to discontinue this. And Mm -hmm. is it safe if I do conceive and what's that timeline look like? So having someone that can kind of cover that timeline and say, when you get pregnant, here's our next steps is so important. Hey there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. I want to dig into, first of all, I freaking love your Instagram account. I just, I love everything you do there. I love your aesthetic. I love the information you share. I feel like you're sharing like a a really wide variety of topics and I know you have some favorites. So I definitely want to dive into some of your, your favorite topics that you talk about. So let's start with a fun one, uh, cervical mm-hmm. mucus or, you know, fertile mucus. Mm-hmm. What is it? Why is it important? What's normal? What's not? And then are there any, any ways to improve the quality of that fertile mucus? Well, you're right. This is one of my very favorite <laughs> topics. And I've even done entire podcast episodes just on this very topic. So just let me give this statistic that I think is really important when we are looking at cervical fluid or cervical mucus, because it's estimated 
you know, I've seen various statistics, but pretty consistent one is that abnormalities of cervical fluid can account for maybe three to 8% of subfertility in women. And that's not a small number. When we're looking at something that, you know, is we can modify, we can measure. So it's something, it's one of the first questions I'm asking my fertility patients. Like, do you track your cycle? Do you monitor your cervical fluid or your cervical mucus? So essentially our, our cervical mucus is produced by the cervix and it changes throughout our cycle. It's one of the best ways that we can predict ovulation. So just to give everybody a little rundown, if you're not familiar with how cervical fluid changes throughout the cycle, we have our day one, right? That's the first day of our period. Our period will you know, likely last three to seven days. Obviously there's lots of variability there. Um, and so the week after our period is usually pretty dry. These are not fertile days, about uh, days 10 to 12. Now this is saying that somebody has roughly a 28 to 30 day cycle, but around days 10 to 12, you probably notice some fluid showing up. A lot of times people will say, yeah, I noticed a little you know, wetness in my underwear, or I just felt a little bit more juicy, which, you know, it's always, people are like hesitant to say that to me in the clinic. And I'm like, no, I thrive off this information. Don't even worry about it. And so when we start to see that fluid accumulating, our fertile window is opening. It's so exciting. And then days, you know, maybe 13 to 17, as we're getting closer to ovulation, our cervical fluid is becoming really stretchy. And at this point, we're thinking about egg white cervical mucus. So it has the consistency of a raw egg white. And people are always like, really? But once you see it, you will never forget it. It really does look like egg white. It's very stretchy. I encourage my patients to touch it and stretch it between their fingers, which I think a lot of people are hesitant to do at first. But once you realize what amazing information you're getting, I think people become a little bit more excited when they see that consistency and they can touch it. So Really, when we see that egg white cervical mucus, we know that ovulation is imminent. We'll probably ovulate in a day or two. So I tell people, this is your signal. This is when you want to time your sex because we want to have sperm waiting when that egg is released. And that's you know really how we can maximize our fertile window. And then after ovulation, for most people, their cervical um, cervical fluid becomes more sparse, dries up a little bit. And then we start the whole cycle over again when your period starts. So all of that to say, this information is given to us. It's free. We just know what we have to look for. And I just, it's sad that we're not all taught this information because it's there. Yeah, I will say, you know, because the vast majority of my patients have PCOS and Mm -hmm. most of them have not been cycling regularly for years and years and years, if not ever. Um, so there comes a time when yeah. we're working together where I get that panicked message. Uh, what is this in my underwear? And yeah. then I'm like, no, it's good. It's good. Like, I'm just like, it's exciting, but you know, they really don't know what it is. They think that something's wrong with them because they've never seen it before. I definitely relate to that. You know, I get the calls too, like, I think I have an infection. What is going on here? And then with further review and maybe even sometimes some testing, it's like, oh no, we actually, this is progress. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. Um, 
So I think, you know, some of the things we can do, obviously it's fluid. So mm-hmm. hydration is one thing that's important for cervical mucus production or fertile fluid production. What are yeah. some other things folks can do if they're not seeing, I mean, let's assume, first of all, mm-hmm. we have to make mm-hmm. sure they're ovulating because if they're, if they're not ovulating, they're not going to be seeing that, but Let's say someone is ovulating, but maybe mm-hmm. they're not seeing a lot of it or it's scanty. Like, what would you what would you recommend at that point? Love this question. We could talk about this all day because it's so fun. Um, so I'll just give just I'll take it back one step to say, which I don't think I said before, that um that really nice egg white fertile quality cervical fluid happens under the direction of estrogen. So estrogen is the main hormone of the first half of our menstrual cycle. That's the follicular phase. And estrogen increases as we get closer to ovulation. And that's really what's driving that change to the structure of our cervical fluid. And so when someone is saying, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a lot of fluid or it's not getting that egg white consistency. The first question I want to ask is, what's going on with their estradiol in the first half of their cycle. So for almost everyone, I'm doing some hormone testing on day three of their cycle, looking at estradiol, follicle-stimulating hormone, uh, anti-malarian hormone, luteinizing hormone. So I'm doing some hormone testing in that follicular phase. So some of the things that might cause estrogen to be low are, for example, low energy balance. So if you're just, you know, have a low caloric intake in general and you're expending many more calories than you're intaking that can impact our hormone production. So we might see low estrogen in that setting. Also some pituitary disorders, like when I have patients who, um, for example, have elevated prolactin or even a prolactinoma that can impact our steroid hormone production. So estrogen, even chronic kidney disease, I've seen that happen a couple of times. So we, we just have to make sure that estrogen is doing its thing in the first half of the cycle. Then if we say, okay, hormones are looking good, but we really just need to improve the consistency. You nailed it with hydration. That's my first step. Our fertile quality cervical fluid is like almost entirely water-based. It's 95 to 99% water. So we just really need to make sure that we're hydrated. Um, I also love a supplement called N-acetylcysteine or NAC, real all-star. I mean, it does so many things. And Um, So NAC has an action as a mucolytic, meaning it breaks up thick secretions. That's why we give it to people who have respiratory infections or asthma. People will ask me all the time, like, oh, well, I, you know, in the fertility clinic, they recommended I take mucinex for my cervical fluid. It totally works. I'm down with that. But I kind of prefer NAC, which has a similar action as a mucolytic, but it's also a great antioxidant. So it protects Mm -hmm. against oxidative stressors, which can be damaging to our egg and sperm cells. So I love NAC. It's excellent for cervical fluid. I also think about fatty acids. Our intake of fatty acids can really change the consistency of our cervical fluid. Some people will take evening primrose oil. Uh, I find that one to be really hit or miss. It either really works or it really doesn't. So I'll give it two or three cycles and we'll see how it goes. Um, And then acupuncture. Acupuncture is one of my favorite ways to stimulate cervical fluid because it really supports circulation through the pelvis, which is helpful for our fluid secretion. So we definitely have some tools going on, looking at hormones, looking at some lifestyle pieces, and we can usually get some pretty good cervical fluid going on. Awesome. It's such a beautiful thing. (laughs) It really, it really is. And 
I love when people learn about this for the first time. I had a patient and she was trying to get pregnant and I said, well, are you measuring your cervical fluid? And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then we went through this whole educational piece about it. And I left the room to go print out her treatment plan. And I came back and she said, I'm on a group text with 10 of my girlfriends and I'm letting them know and asking them if they've ever measured this. And I was like, can I just tell you how delighted I am that that's the topic of your group text right now? I love it. Yeah. If you know, share it with a friend, tell everyone. So important. One of your other favorites to talk about is progesterone. I love progesterone. I get a ton of questions around how to improve progesterone naturally. Um, You know, this is assuming that someone is ovulating and, you know, it is possible to improve progesterone with the nutrients to support it and Mm -hmm. lifestyle changes. But personally, you know, what I've seen is that that takes a lot of time and a lot of dedication to managing stress like it's your job. Um, And oftentimes when, when low progesterone is, you know, part of the reason why pregnancy isn't successful, we just don't have that time to work with. And I always joke like, oh, if I moved to a cabin in the woods where there's no internet, like my progesterone would probably be picture perfect. I think you're, what you were saying about your aura ring and being out on the farm is like a good demonstration of that. Yeah. It's like, if you could do that 24 hours a day, could you imagine like how picture perfect all your <laughs> hormones would be? That being said, like, what are some of the key things we can do to increase progesterone naturally? Yeah. So I'm going to reveal, I'm going to reveal a little bit of my bias here because I absolutely agree. There's, there's are things we can do to naturally increase our progesterone. So you manage, or you mentioned stress management, which I think is really at the core of anytime we're seeing a low progesterone. Also something that I've seen you talk about too, is having adequate dietary antioxidants, because just to give a little background, we have our little follicle, which we've talked about, and that's essentially our egg sac. And then at ovulation, our egg cell bursts from that egg sac and the existing structure of the egg sac becomes what's called the corpus luteum. And that structure is this group of cells that's responsible now for pumping out progesterone. And when we have a poor quality corpus luteum because there's not enough blood flow to the pelvis and we don't have enough antioxidants, then it kind of withers away pretty quickly. And we see a rapid drop in progesterone uh, before we would really expect that. So maybe, you know, after 10 days that corpus luteum, it just can't really pump out progesterone anymore. And then we have a short luteal phase. So dietary antioxidants is really helpful to support the health of those cells. Blood flow through the pelvis again. So I'm thinking acupuncture and yoga and massage and all of these wonderful physical medicine techniques that we can utilize to increase blood flow. Those are kind of my go-tos, but I feel like I have to be transparent here and say that I prescribe progesterone often because as you mentioned, it takes a long time to get that progesterone in a good space naturally. And when I have patients that are actively trying to conceive, I need to act on it right away. So I'm using some bioidentical progesterone, oral micronized progesterone, progesterone suppositories with some frequency. Yeah. I'm typically sending my patients to their doctor to get progesterone recommended because, you know, sometimes it's just 
there's no shame in needing a little extra help. It's the same thing as needing a little insulin if you if you have diabetes or needing yeah. a little thyroid support if your thyroid is slow. It's like, yeah, you can take a natural approach to this, but most people are unwilling to make the kind of drastic changes that that would entail or you know, we're kind of racing against the clock when it comes to fertility. Yeah, there's definitely a time consideration and I'll just add that I'm always doing all of those things, all of, yeah. you know, the stress management and the nutrition while we're doing, you know, a prescription as well. It's we're doing both, but it just allows us to have, you know, a little bit I can control for the variables a little bit tighter. Right. You don't want someone to be stressed out about managing their stress. <laughs> That's absolutely opposite of my goal. And especially for my patients who have had, you know, for example, a history of recurrent pregnancy loss and they have this short luteal phase and they're so freaked out about their progesterone. It's like, okay, well, we have some options. Let's use the tools that are available to us. Yeah, I find too with the with the luteal phase uh, deficiency patients it's often not who you would expect. It's not the ones who come into the office, like stressed to the max, talking 90 miles an hour. It's, it's the quiet ones who like internalize the stress, but they Mm. seem fine. And they're often the ones who are the most stressed on the inside. I think you nailed it that I agree. Yeah. So I want to talk about another one of your favorite topics, mitochondria. How mitochondria? How do mitochondria play into fertility and hormone health? So many ways. We'll talk about a couple of them, but I just I hope that everyone else is like me. And when you hear mitochondria, there's some biology, like it's my 10th grade biology teacher Mm -hmm. that I hear, but I hope you have some biology teacher in your head that's like, mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. Mm Because that's what I think about every single time. Um, so I remember building it. I had to build a mitochondria. I think it was sixth or seventh grade. I had, and I filled it with jello. Um, and and I think like, what were those candies? Mike and Ike or like like little little Mike and Ike in the jello. And I made it wavy on the inside. Yeah. I remember that. (laughs) I hope a photo exists of that somewhere. Please share it if you can dig it up because that would be amazing to see. I'll find the one that I made out of clay, which was a little bit unattractive, but it worked. So, I mean, mitochondria are so important and it's really for a couple of reasons. So I'll start because we just talked about progesterone, that there's actually a relationship here. So part of the um, way that we make our steroid hormones like estrogen and progesterone and testosterone is we take cholesterol, which is the backbone of those steroid hormones, and we shuttle it into the inner membrane of our mitochondria. And that's how we can produce our steroid hormones. So part of the treatment plan for me, when someone has low estrogen or low progesterone, is like, okay, well, what's going on with your mitochondria? Because they're really that little helpful organelles that can allow you to make your hormones. So we do some mitochondrial support in that situation. I'll also point out a fun fact in case this comes up on Jeopardy, that oocytes or egg cells have the highest concentration of mitochondrial DNA content in the human body, which is mind-blowing to me. There's roughly 200,000 copies per cell, which is way more than other cells that we think of as being really energy dependent, like even our muscle cells. 
And I would say that there's even growing evidence that suggests that the potential for an embryo to be successful is really related to the ability of the egg cells mitochondria to generate energy. So this is something I'm thinking about all the time in my preconception patients, because for example, we know that all of these processes that are required to make a baby, you know, ovulation, fertilization, implantation, and then embryogenesis, which is the growth of an embryo, they're what I call energetically expensive. And we already know that our mitochondria are our powerhouse of the cell. They produce energy. So our mitochondrial health is really crucial to kind of pay for those energetically expensive processes. And then the other kind of connecting point I'll make here is an area of research that I've been really interested in is ovarian aging. And we know that there's an age-related decline in mitochondrial function. It just happens to all of us. We have increased mitochondrial DNA mutations. We have decreased mitochondrial DNA copy numbers. And these things really serve as mm, kind of biomarkers for egg health, embryo viability. So really preserving our mitochondrial function ultimately slows our ovarian aging and can prolong our fertility potential. And I think that's really important as we, you know, we have all of these women in the workforce and they're having children later in life. So let's have this conversation about how we can prolong our fertility potential. Yeah, I love that. I love the concept of of it being an energetically expensive process. It's it's kind of similar to why reproductive hormones um, go down or the priority on reproduction goes down during times of war or famine because mm-hmm. our body needs to conserve that energy for use elsewhere. Yeah, like our brain and all of these vital yeah. organs that keep us going. I know I'm totally like pulling from the vaults of my brain, but isn't the heart also one of the most mitochondrial dense muscles? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Really important things need mitochondria. Yeah. Yes. See, your biology teachers would be so proud. Ah, Sister Rita. I just, I always remember Sister Rita was my, my ninth grade uh, anatomy teacher. Yes. Thanks, Sister Rita. (laughs) She's remembering now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so are there ways that we can improve our mitochondrial health or, or for those of us who might be of a certain age, uh, preserve that mitochondrial health longer? I will definitely share some of my favorite mitochondrial support. I have a couple different things. So the first thing is I love a Mediterranean diet, right? It's very well researched in terms of the fertility Um, setting IVF mostly, but we know that the Mediterranean diet, really the pillars of it, it's low glycemic, full of fiber, rich, brightly colored fruits and vegetables, lots of healthy fats. So that's, those are the same things that I'm hoping for, for a mitochondrial support nutrition plan as well. And then of course, there's some supplements that we can call upon. So I think maybe one of the most popular is CoQ10. I love CoQ10 for egg health mostly because it helps really helps with mitochondria. There's some antioxidants. So we know that when we have oxidative stress, which is um, essentially an imbalance in the body between these compounds called free radicals, which are unstable molecules that can damage cells. Um, when we have an imbalance between our oxidative stress and our antioxidant capacity, we can see damage to our mitochondria. So I'm calling upon some antioxidants like 
uh, resveratrol and melatonin and alpha lipoic acid. We already talked about our crowd favorite, N-acetylcysteine. Mm. And then I also love things like magnesium and curcumin and quercetin and green tea. And really there's a whole list of things, but what what I I try to um, get the most bang for my buck out of supplements. And so I try to pick things when I'm customizing a treatment plan that have some dual action. So let's say I really want to do some mitochondrial support with someone, but they also have elevated inflammation markers. I'm going to choose something like curcumin that, you know, is a great mitochondrial support, but it also has anti-inflammatory action. So I, I try not to give people supplement fatigue and have them taking a billion things, which sometimes they still are taking quite a few things, but I try to get dual action so that we're minimizing as much as possible. Yeah, I agree. If I've got someone who's got, let's say, seasonal allergies, then we're going to be looking at quercetin and NAC, you know? Yes, exactly. Like we can we can get a few, few benefits from this. <laughs> yeah, and then it's like, when you then have to take your prenatal vitamin that the ones that I tend to use have a few different capsules, it doesn't feel so cumbersome. We do our best. Yeah. I do want to talk about thyroid briefly as well. Mm -hmm. You did mention that, you know, a comprehensive thyroid evaluation is part of your initial evaluation of someone. Why is thyroid so important for fertility? Ooh, there's so many reasons. Uh, I'll give you the ones that come to mind first. And I just, it's really important that we're thinking about thyroid health because I've seen estimates that up to a third of women with subfertility have an underlying thyroid disorder. And I would say that my clinical population definitely supports that. I am seeing underfunctioning thyroid all the time in my patients who are struggling to get pregnant. And so this is something that is somewhat of a low hanging fruit because it's easy to test for, Mm -hmm. right? And in my world, it's like well covered by insurance. You can get the testing from any of the major labs. So why, why not take a look? So if we look at the, the mechanism by which our thyroid interacts with our reproductive system, the first thing that I always think about is that hypothyroidism or low functioning thyroid can disrupt the release of something called gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And this is really the messenger from our brain that helps us release the other hormones that are responsible for maturing our eggs and triggering ovulation. So obviously, if that brain-ovary communication is disrupted, we're going to have a really hard time maturing eggs and then releasing one. The other piece is a low thyroid function prevents what we call the activation of granulosa cells. Granulosa cells are my favorite. They surround a little egg cell within its follicle and they're the helper cells. They help to nourish the egg cell. They receive the signals from hormones and granulosa cells are activated by thyroid hormone, meaning it allows those cells to receive mostly the signal from follicle stimulating hormone, which is this hormone that comes from the brain, tells the ovary, let's start growing a group of eggs. And from that group, we'll choose our favorite and we'll ovulate that one. We see that women with hypothyroidism have more anovulatory cycles, likely because they're just not maturing their eggs enough to get one big enough to ovulate because their thyroid hormone is not activating those granulosa cells. And then I think the other really common one that I see is when we have hypothyroidism, we can see an elevated prolactin, which again, interferes Mm -hmm. with that 
brain ovary communication so that we're not ovulating. All right. So I totally agree, you know, particularly with thyroid, but also with progesterone that those are two places where if you're having recurrent pregnancy loss or you're having trouble getting pregnant, those are two things that are really easy to fix, you know, and they're not expensive fixes either. It's just like, well, let's give you a little extra support for the thyroid, or let's give you a little extra progesterone support. And it's just, it's such an easy thing that like, if that's the problem, how easy was that? You know? (laughs) Totally. And also it's like with thyroid hormones. So in my patients who are trying to conceive, I'm, I'm, pretty much exclusively prescribed levothyroxine in this mm-hmm. time frame anyway. And then with progesterone too, it's like the safety profile is pretty good. These are very safe medications in the way that we use them. So it seems really worth it to give it a try. Yeah. Yeah. And I know you've talked about this on Instagram, but briefly, why do you prefer the levothyroxine when we're in pregnancy or trying to conceive? Yeah, this is a great question and it comes up all the time. So kind of the gist of it is that for the first 20 weeks of gestation, a baby is really dependent on mom's thyroid function, particularly T4. And so levothyroxine is T4. And my goal is really to ensure adequacy of T4 because I know that baby's growth and development is really depending on mama's thyroid function. Yeah, that makes total sense. I've also heard it's more standardized in the dosing compared to some of the more natural ones. Yeah, that's part of the issue as well is that, you know, there's different ratios of T4 to T3 and some of our desiccated glandular products. There's other, you know, aspects of those medications that aren't as standardized. And when someone's trying to get pregnant, as we, you know, mentioned earlier that I'm really about the safety piece. And I want to, again, control for variables and know exactly what I'm prescribing. And I will say some people do feel better with a combination therapy in a desiccated thyroid product. And I think that's perfectly appropriate to revisit that in the postpartum timeframe. But when someone's trying to get pregnant, I, I pretty much stick to the levothyroxine. Yeah, that makes total sense. Thank you for that explanation. Before we wrap up, I want to know, Are there any fertility myths that you're just dying to bust on air? Oh gosh, there's so many. It's hard to even, maybe we should do a rapid fire. So I think that one of the really frustrating ones is like infertility is mostly a female issue, Mm -hmm. right? Like how frustrating, because we see that there's actually a, a huge decline in male fertility, which is a whole other topic, but male factor infertility accounts for depending on what source you're looking at, like 30 to 50% of infertility cases, that's a huge number. And I think this is something that when I see a patient who's gone through advanced reproductive treatment and her partner has actually not had a semen analysis, I just kind of pull my hair because how did we, how did we get this far without that piece of information? So infertility is not a exclusively female issue. We just have to bust that myth. The other one that I'll just briefly talk about, because I know that you talk about this all the time is like, you can't get pregnant with PCOS. I hear that all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you do too, that my patients with PCOS will come and say, 
I had a fertility workup. They told me that IVF was my only option and it might not even work and I'll never ovulate and I'm infertile. And we just know that that's not true. Not to say Mm -hmm. that everyone with PCOS is going to have an easy time getting pregnant. It's definitely, you know, requires some thoughtfulness, but people with PCOS can absolutely get pregnant. Yeah, it's much more a case of subfertility versus infertility. Um, Yes. And really that big barrier is getting them to ovulate. But then once that hurdle has been overcome pregnancy, you know, if they're actively trying pregnancy usually happens pretty quickly once, once they're ovulating again, you know, and that's where some some of those ovulation stimulation medications come in because they do that part for you, you know? Yep. Absolutely. The last one that I'll just kind of throw out there because I get this in my Instagram DMs all the time is people are terrified to have an orgasm during their two-week wait. That that like the contraction of the uterus will somehow dislodge their embryo. So just this is my public service announcement. Everyone, please feel free to have an orgasm during your two-week wait. It will probably help you relax and enjoy your life and treat yourself. Well, I have to say, I've heard some clinics say that, like, you know, especially after IVF, uh, saying that intercourse is not allowed after transfer. Yeah, not, I all, mean, not all clinics say that, but I have heard that out there. I think we might be more inclined to follow that train of thought in someone that has had a history of really early miscarriage, recurrent pregnancy loss, what we might call like a a biochemical pregnancy where they get the, you know, positive pregnancy test. And then two days later they start bleeding, which is so Mm -hmm. frustrating. But for most people, activities of daily living are going to be totally fine. Well, you heard it here, ladies, go have an orgasm. (laughs) It releases oxytocin, which I know is also one of your favorite topics. It's probably my favorite hormone. So you heard it here. Here we go. We we must we busted the myths. <laughs> I love it. So let's wrap up with something I ask everyone, which is what's one thing you'd want people struggling with infertility or subfertility to take away from this episode? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's so many things we consider here, but one of the things I talk to patients about is it's so easy for us to adopt our infertility or subfertility as our identity, right? Mm. Like not that I have subfertility, but I am a subfertile human and it becomes all encompassing and it becomes our identity. And so part of the work that I do is really, you know, we're doing all of these things to support your health and in doing so that supports your fertility, but we're really here to cultivate whole person health, cultivate resiliency in our health. And it's really about so much more than just your fertility in creating strength within the human organism, which is really what we're doing, it rolls over into your reproductive system. But I really try to frame it as all the work that we're doing is for you as a whole person, because you're, you know, maybe you have infertility or subfertility, but I'm sure you're also, you know, a partner or a friend or a sister or a daughter or a teacher, or there's, you know, all of these other pieces of your identity that also deserve attention and love and care. So I always try to, you know, go back to that conversation of this is not your soul identity. 
Yeah. Remember who you were before you started struggling with this. I see that a lot Mm -hmm. where, you know, we're trying to consume every piece of information we possibly can about the condition. But if every podcast you're listening to is about fertility, if every book you're reading is about fertility, like it just helps to, to focus on some other things to take your mind off of it and remember who you were before this happened. I think it's good advice. Yeah, so tell the audience where they can find you. Please don't hesitate to reach out at drkaliawaddles.com or you can find me at my favorite location, which is Instagram at Functional Fertility. Well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation and I think we got deep on a whole lot of different areas related to fertility. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.